Um, and this summer, we're walking through the whole book of Acts, learning about that purpose, and specifically talking about what it means for God to work in our lives. So we, we recognize that God is at work out there, but is God at work in you? And the book of Acts is the story of the first Christian believers and how their, how their lives multiplied, how their discipleship multiplied and ultimately changed the world and changed our lives now all these years, all these years later. So we're reading Acts not just to learn what happened, but to learn what could happen for us. Today we're going to read chapters, thir- or chapters 14 and 15. And if you'd like to follow along in a church Bible, that's page 664. Otherwise, turn to Acts 14. I'm reading from the NLT, or New Living Translation. And one of the commitments we made this summer was to read through the whole book of Acts in church. So I'd be the first to admit, sometimes we're reading longer passages out loud together. If that really bothers you, I suppose you don't have to listen, but I would say it's probably time better spent hearing God's word than just more of my words. So we can zoom in and we'll just take a deep breath. We'll read this and we're asking, Lord, what do you want to teach us in this text? What do you want to teach us from this? Now, one of the things that I notice as we read is that the book of Acts is filled with threats. Have you noticed that so far in the first 13 chapters we've read? Uh, There are constantly death threats being leveled against people. There are threats of persecution. There's threats that are brought from both outside and inside the group. And here in Acts 14, it's no different. Um, In fact, what we read last week about the Apostle Paul and Barnabas going into a city and this big mob erupted and they tried to kill them, and that happens again here, and that's where we pick up the story, verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, the same thing happened in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with great power that a great number of Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord. And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about them. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Then a mob of Gentiles and Jews, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. When the apostles learned of it, they fled to the region of Lyconia, to the towns of Lystra and Derbe, and the surrounding area. And there they preach the good news. Now, just so you know, because stoning, thankfully, is a situation meant picture, that was a pretty big deal. Like, that's attempted murder. Stoning someone in this situation meant picking up bricks and heavy stones and literally pummeling them until they were dead. So that is when the apostles were threatened with that, they moved to the next town, but it didn't silence them. It didn't stop them. They just kept preaching. They kept moving forward. They had a bigger mission to attend to than their own preservation. And so, sure, if if you're going to reject us in one town, we'll move to the next, but we're still going to preach the good news. Verse 8, while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, and he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached, looking straight at him. Paul realized that he had faith to be healed. So Paul called him with a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. 
when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. And they decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now, the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. It's kind of humorous, right? When people see something, all they have to work with is what they know. So here's this miracle. I'm like, oh, wow, we've been worshiping Zeus all this time. I guess he just showed up. This is a pretty big difference from the last town they were in, right? I mean, one town, you're about to get stoned and dragged out and killed. And this town, we're going to worship you as if you're a god. Flowers to the tell. The, chief, or the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out in among the people, saying, Friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We have come to bring you the good news so that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he, he permitted all nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could Antioch and I restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. So they stoned Paul. Get this, and they did drag him out, thinking he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town, which I think is one of the most muted miracles of the Bible, right? Because he just got stoned, and this crowd thought he was dead. So not that we want to get super gory, but just take a minute and imagine what that scene would have looked like. This is not a scenario where you just get up and walk back into the town, right? This is like months of recovery and therapy if you're lucky enough to survive. And here the believers gather around, they pray for Paul, he gets up with Barnabas right back into that hornet's nest. So uh, the next day though, they left with Barnabas for Derby. So what we see is this pattern where they're preaching the gospel, people get all stirred up on one side or the other, some people become believers and they keep moving. It seems like nothing is going to slow down the momentum of this church, right? I mean, the early church is just growing and multiplying, and no matter what happens, it seems like the, the message keeps going. Verse 21, after, the, after preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned, get this, where? To Lystra and Iconium, the places where all this just happened, uh, and to Antioch and Pisidia. And there they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them, and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting he turned the elders over to the care of the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Pisidia and Pamphylia, and they preached the word in Perga, and they went down to Italia. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where their journey had begun, and the believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God and to do the work that they'd now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything that God had done through them. And how, they opened the door, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. So you'd say, wow, I mean, this church, this mission they're on, it seems like it's unstoppable inside the church. But there is a threat, not outside, but inside the church that might derail the whole thing. 
And we read about that threat in chapter 15, verse 1. And we're going to read this one not just with an eye to the past, but thinking a little bit about us right now and what would derail the momentum we feel in our church right now. So, chapter 15, verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I know you realize, that sounds really crazy, right? What in the world is going on? Well, you read the Old Testament, you realize that if someone wanted to convert and become a Jew back in the day, they had, they had to walk through a whole variety of ceremonial cleansings and, you know, rites of purification and things. And one of those things for the guys was they had to be circumcised. That was like a symbol of their commitment, a symbol of their identity among the Jewish people. So you have people who become Christians out of Judaism, and now they're still carrying their traditions with them. Okay, so they're, and, and word hasn't spread to everybody yet about how, how what Peter's vision with the sheet was or whatever. So there, there's still people who are confused about this. And these Judean believers, first thing, wait a minute, if you want to convert, you have to go through, the, you have to go back and do the first thing here again. You've got to go back to the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised if you're going to join our team. Okay, now, obviously, that creates some stir, right? And so immediately you've got uh, the potential for derailment of mission in the church because you've got one set of traditions over here coming up against people that don't have those traditions. And, I mean, you tell me, if, if they added the law of Moses to the advance of the gospel, do you think it would have advanced very much further? You read the book of Leviticus and you think about all the laws people had, that that would have stopped the momentum of the church faster than anything else, faster than the external persecution would have. So, finally, the problem to solve. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. Jerusalem was still the leading church, and the people who were at that church of Jerusalem would have been the people that were closest to Jesus, so, so you're, you're coming back home to say, okay, like people are getting saved all over the place and the gospel is spreading and the momentum is growing, but we're running into like some major cultural mismatch here. What do we do? Well, the church sent delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them in much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the elders and the apostles. They reported everything God had done through them, but then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now, there's like 600 laws in the law of Moses. If you, if you try to go to pagan cultures... And, and bring all of them so that they all function like Jewish cultures, like that's, that's going to slow down the gospel's advance. Now, if it was the right thing to do, you got to do it, right? And for these people who'd grown up that way, it honestly felt like the right thing to do. They felt like they were defending something that had to be defended that was so critical to faith and relationship to God. What they didn't know was that God was working in a new way, in an expansive way, a way that they didn't understand. 
So it was up to the apostles and the elders of this church to weed all this out. And I would say this is one of the, this is a linchpin moment, really, for the growth of Christianity. Because if these apostles and elders make the wrong decision about what to do with this problem, in all likelihood, either their church would have split or it would have disintegrated. So what will they do? Verse 6, the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. And at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he has confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he gave to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke or a job to do that neither of us, neither us nor our ancestors could bear? That is the dirty secret behind all this is nobody was actually keeping the law of Moses. Nobody could. So why would you add that now to the good news of the gospel? Peter says in verse 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. There's not a Jewish path to salvation that's different from a Gentile path. Everybody's saved by God's grace. Nobody deserves it. Nobody can earn it. Well, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among them through the Gentiles. When they'd finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Now, James was known as a leader in that time. There were two different Jameses in the book of Acts. Okay, one of them, sadly, a few chapters ago, we learned that he was killed because he was preaching the good news. He was the Apostle James. Okay, this James is the brother of Jesus. So Jesus had some natural half-brothers after Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story. You know, they did go ahead and get married, and there were other kids in their family. So James had grown up alongside Jesus. So he, he speaks, and people go, okay, we'll listen to James. He probably does have a little bit of an inside track, having grown up with Jesus himself. James said, verse 14, Peter has told you about the time that God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All of those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he has made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from eating the food sacrificed to idols or sex and from sexual morality, from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city and every Sabbath for many gener generations. Well, then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to uh, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you, this official, uh, send you official representatives. 
along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols and consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals and from sexual morality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. I'm imagining that's when they hit their character limit, right? Because it doesn't seem like you would write a longer letter if you're going to go through, you know, send this big entourage and then, you know, hey, this, do these four things, you'll do well. Farewell. Um, but, you know, short and sweet, there it was. Verse 30, the messengers went at once to Antioch where they called the general meeting of the believers and delivered this letter. And there was great joy throughout the church as they read this encouraging message. So you have to imagine you've got all these Gentile believers that are like, they're committed to Jesus. They've been told they're going to have to go backwards and like do Leviticus, right? They're going to have to start with circumcision and then follow all these rules. So they're really waiting with bated breath, like, what is this actually going to be like? And am I really going to be able to follow Jesus? I was kind of hoping I could. So, wow, when the message comes, it's this great relief. And they're breathed this sigh. They feel great encouragement. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to all the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. And they stayed for a while. And stayed in Antioch. Sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, and they, they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord from there. Now, the last paragraph we'll come back to, but I, I want to zoom in on this threat this threat of this disagreement undoing all the great momentum that was happening in that first century church. All right, so a little threat assessment here if we think about the factors involved, like what's coming at them. We know they've got problems outside and inside. The threat outside keeps proving to strengthen them. Would you agree with that? You know, like that? The more persecution and hate they experience out there in the world, the more it just solidifies their commitment to keep going. You think external threats often do that. Okay, they boost the sense of teamwork. They clarify the essential mission because your life's on the line. You get, you get, you get a lot of clarity in that moment. Uh, it steals your long-term resolve. You go, we can't let the world go this way. Like, we have the good news. Let's work together. Let's set aside our differences and move ahead. And, and in many ways, you can imagine the, the heartbeat being, this is us against the world, and we're going for it together. So those external threats actually help you become a team. Internal threats are a lot more dangerous because they do exactly the opposite of all of that. They reduce teamwork because now, I don't know if I can exactly work alongside you. We don't agree on everything. They complicate the mission because in addition to the mission, now you have another mission of trying to, whatever, jockey for political position or make sure that your way of thinking is the presiding way of thinking. It degrades the sense of resolve. So if you're in a, if you're in a church, an organization, or even a business that is, is just like there's a lot of internal disagreement, you know what ends up happening is people, people check out and people start thinking, I don't know if I'll invest here until I see if things work out because this might all just fall apart. So, wow, you wouldn't want that to happen to your church, right? And, and ultimately, when there's internal threats that aren't resolved, you end up with a me versus you mentality happening in and among the church family, okay? So internal threats, way bigger complexity here than the external threats. And what I notice in the book of Acts is that 
pressure from the outside strengthens the church, here in this story, Acts 15, there's a moment when everything that had been built up till this point could collapse if the elders and apostles miss the mark on this decision. So what do they do in this do-or-die scenario? Do they focus or do they fracture? So I thought it'd be helpful to go back and just say, okay, well, what did they do? Like, what's their process for resolving what seems like sort of an unresolvable disagreement? You've got people who grew up Jewish that everything in their lifestyle points to a certain type of living, and now they're supposed to merge and have fellowship with a bunch of people that they grew up being taught not even to talk to? How is that going to work? Well, first thing that they did in that early church to keep their momentum going is they did take the time to meet. They said, let's talk about this. Let's sit down and work through it. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't talk in side rooms and, you know, everybody formed an opinion on social media or something. And then, like, later on, like, okay, now we have a meeting when everybody's upset. No, like, let's write it. Like, as soon as we know there's an issue, let's meet. Let's address it. Let's talk about it. Another thing I think is interesting is they started by celebrating their shared mission. They didn't say, hey, everybody, let's meet and talk about the problem that some of us have. They said, let's meet. Let's say, what is God doing? Now let's talk about our problems. Okay, that really does reframe your problems. Would you agree? That if you can see, like, if you start realizing like lives are changing and good things are happening, all the problems, they still matter, but now they're a subset of like, we don't want to lose the mission. How do we solve the problem so the mission can continue? Instead of the problem becoming the definition of the whole discussion. Okay, next thing, starting a conversation in this way reframes the problem. And what I've learned, I've worked in churches for more than 20 years now, and I've learned that in every issue of like discussion or debate or disagreement or disunity, issue of all, there's always a bigger issue than the issue. And I would tell you right now, the biggest issue of all is always the Great Commission. It's are you with great commandments, love God, love your neighbor, great commission is go make disciples. That's the top line. And so anything that ultimately throws you off course and reduces your ability to do those things is, is an issue that's underneath the bigger issue. So what the disciples were able to do is say, well, obviously we're going to have to address this concern because we have a mismatch here and there's no way for the Jewish believers and Gentile believers to work together. And, and this is going to tear us all apart. But the bigger issue was not actually who's right and who's wrong. The bigger issue is how do we keep the momentum of mission going? How do we not slow down what God is doing? Okay, the third thing they did is they reviewed the context of the concerns. So they heard the concerns. And then Peter got up and he said, you know, let, let, let's go back and look at the history here of what God has been doing. God told us to open this door. God demonstrated he is opening this door. It's not up to us to close it. Okay, then James gets up. And he does something really smart that we should do too. They open their Bibles. James said, well, let's look at what the prophet said. Remember in the first century, the Bible in their world was the, what we call the Old Testament. Okay? So, so they open that up and they say, well, the conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. So this is supposed to happen because we know that. Let's get practical in our solution. So this is where they could have gone philosophy and said, like, let's really debate it out and figure out who's right and then excommunicate the people that are wrong. 
Or we go practical and we say, how do we keep the mission going? How do we minimize the distraction of this issue? Because right now there is a bigger issue than that issue. Thankfully, they chose the second option. They got really practical. James said, well, we we should not make it difficult for them to become Christians. Instead, we should write to them and tell them what would be wise to do. So we, we see their letter, and, and I like it how concise it is, how obvious it is, how simple it is. Well, here, here's what they were doing. Epis over here, he's dead wrong. Don't follow him. No, they didn't get into all that. They just said, let us encourage you with the big picture here. We know there's a problem. We know some people came from us to you. We didn't send them. That's why we're sending representatives now, and we're going to offer you a path forward out of this mess into the future. Okay, they affirmed clarity on obvious morality. So one of the problems with the worship of the, uh, like in the pagan worship world where the, the Greeks were worshiping all sorts of gods like Zeus and Hermes and people like that, is that was all tied together with the meat they were eating. Like they were all, all sorts of feasts and sacrifices and then selling and trading that meat. And also that was all baked in with a culture of sexual immorality. So these early church leaders said, okay, obviously refrain from sexual immorality. Like, that's clear. There's no question. That's not about your opinion or mine. That's just God's word to all of us. Our hearts, our minds, our bodies are supposed to be pure. They're supposed to be set apart for God's use. So so that's clear. But then when it comes to the meat sacrifice to idols and whether or not the, you know, how the animal died that you're eating, the Jews really care about all that stuff. The Gentile believers don't necessarily. There are other places in the New Testament where this particular issue pops up because it was a big deal to them. For us, we kind of yawn and go, well, I, I've never even heard of that before. Well, that's, that's great. We have our own versions of these same kind of things. But for them, this is a big deal, and it was causing a lot of disunity. So they advised compromise on the optional ceremony that would be attached to the, law, the legal system of that Jewish way of living. They said, of course, refrain from sexual morality, but we're saying to you, don't, don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And the, the blood of strangled animals, give all that up. If you do that, you'll do well. Farewell. And they let the Holy Spirit guide and lead those people in the rest of the conversation. Now, their answers weren't necessarily the final answers on the things that were coming up. They didn't really even like take a lot of nuance to address the issue. What they did was give a road forward so that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers could retain fellowship with each other, go to each other's house about it. If, if there was, with, especially with the whole food issue, they couldn't even go to each other's houses for dinner because they would feel like there was all these complexities and challenges. That, that, that how are they going to function as a team? How are they going to be on mission together if they can't even associate with one another because of cultural issues? So these church leaders wisely said, you know what, if to the Gentile believers who feel all this freedom, we need, you to, we need to take a step back, give up a few things so that you can retain fellowship. All of you don't get involved in the sexual morality that's in your culture. Uh, instead, focus on the mission. Get back at it. Okay, and they did. And other places in the scripture address those issues more in more detail. First Corinthians and Romans both have kind of deep dives on the meat sacrifice to idols and when it's like when your conscience is able to handle something and somebody else's isn't, what should you do? But these early church leaders knew they had to keep the church focused on the mission. Okay, and then there's one extra lesson at the very end of this chapter, which is really helpful as we think about maintaining our momentum as a church. Okay, look at verse 36. 
After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how these new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and they sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and as he left, the believers entrusted him with the, grace, and the, grace, the Lord's gracious care. And he traveled throughout Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches there. And it's interesting because even in a, in a, even in a disagreement about strategy and personnel, they found a path forward to multiply the mission. Because once again, you could go, oh my goodness, like Barnabas and Paul are going at it and they're disagreeing. But that disagreement didn't sideline the mission. In fact, it actually expanded the mission by multiplying their team. And there again, when we face disagreement, the first issue on the table is not who's right and who's wrong. And when it's the first issue on the table is what's the big picture mission and where's it going? And when it's an issue of opinion and debate, sure, there's a place for that. There's a time for that. But first, look at the main issue. Okay? And then when it's a personal issue and you're going, I don't know if I can work with that person, Okay, you don't have to work with them, but you can still, you're still on the same team. So that's Paul, Barnabas and Paul found a way to be on the same team and still not see eye to eye. eye, to eye. So I feel like that gives us a little bit of a road forward when we recognize we're a, we're a diverse community of believers here. Right? A lot of people in this room are coming from different backgrounds, different church upbringings, so the way things happen is going to be different and preferences are going to be different. Say so that could either separate us and wipe us all out or it could just be a matter where we say, you know what, my resolution here is to keep the main thing, the main thing. So Great Commission first, all these other issues second. And when the disagreement means we're not supposed to work together, okay, but we can do that amicably. We can still do that joyfully. There doesn't have to be anger and dissension, and it doesn't have to tear anything apart. In fact, we're supposed to be multiplying anyway. So in all of this narrative here of Acts 15, what did they accomplish as they navigated these complex issues? Well, first of all, it's interesting to note, they did not forever resolve the Jew and Gentile issue. The rest of the New Testament, almost every book, they have to keep addressing it, right? So they did not fix that. What they did do was keep the momentum of the church on track so that the mission didn't stop right there in, in chapter 15. Instead, things continued to move forward. It did, they, they were able to focus the people's resolve together on what actually mattered the most. So, bring it home, bring it right to our church. What happens when one of us has a concern about, I don't know, it's maybe something we believe or a doctrinal thing, or, or maybe it's like a strategy thing about how something's happening or a decision leadership people are making? There are lots of different ways you can play that, different directions you can go with that. Um, here, here's, here's a path, okay? First of all, take it to the person involved first, okay? So you just go ahead and start right where they just say, we, we talk about it openly. It doesn't have to be any secrets. We're all trying to accomplish the mission together. So if there's something holding us back, let's talk about it, uh, not stew in it, right? Um, and, and so I, I find this interesting. Now I, I play a, a unique role in our church structure because I'm the lead pastor. So one of the things that happens to me, I would say fairly frequently, is I will hear my opinion from someone else that's actually not my opinion. 
And I'll think, how in the world? Like, I've never heard of that issue. How did that happen? Uh, well, apparently, you know, somebody had an opinion, talked about it, thought they... So ask before assuming. Okay, so if you, if you look at something that doesn't make sense to you, um, if, you're, if you're the, you know, Jewish cultural person going, wait, wait, I, I saw these rules, what, what about that? Um, you, ask about it, right? Or, or you look at it and you say, wait, I, I'm seeing what you're planning here, it doesn't make sense. Ask about it. We're all on the same team. The goal is to accomplish the mission. And so I would want to know if something's not going to be effective, please, let's talk about it, all right? So put the mission first in your heart. And then I would say choose an abundance mentality when you're facing trouble and challenge in the church uh, or even in your personal relationships. What that means is that instead of thinking of like a very narrow band of limited options, making it super binary, like, wow, if we, if we do this, it means we'll never do that. Or if we start this, it means we'll never stop that. Like, instead of thinking in those terms, instead just recognize, just like the early church had to recognize, God is working in expansive ways and in many ways that are different than what are familiar to us. Which means today, if you got an airplane, you fly around the world and you visit churches, there's going to be a lot of diversity and a lot of difference between how we're doing it here and how it's happening other places. And if you were to get in a time machine and go back or forward, there's going to be a lot of diversity and difference between how things happen. You say, the kingdom of God has to keep moving. I want my heart to be right, but I recognize there's endless opportunity out there. That's an abundance mentality. So when there's a challenge, I wanted to give you a little window into like what happens in my brain. Okay, here's how kind of we'll wrap up with this. But I give this to you as a challenge back to you. Say, what happens in your mind when you stumble into something where you go, uh-oh, I disagree. Oh, wow, there's more than one way to do this. I don't know if we're doing it the right way. Okay, so here's what's happening in, in my head. The first thing I think is, well, there's, there's room at the table. I've been proven wrong many times in my life by people that I didn't know before. Like, when, once you meet them, then you realize they have a point of view, and you're like, oh, there's another way to think of this. Then I wasn't automatically right the first time I thought every thought. So, okay, there's room at the table. There's, there's a conversation we can have. Um, there's an even bigger issue. There always is. So if there's some sort of problem, just think for a second, what's the bigger issue? Uh, and, and how does that ultimately connect to the mission advancing? Because that's really what we're all about. Okay, there's endless good work to do. So that's a, that's a special shout out to those of you who, you look around and you're like, man, somebody else is in the seat that I want to be in. Like they got the position and I didn't get it. Here's the secret of all nonprofit activity. There are endless jobs to do, and there are endless titles we can make up and give them to you, okay? So if, if you want to work for the kingdom, we will give you a job to do in the kingdom. There's no question about that. There are endless opportunities. So if, if, you, have a, if you have a scarcity mentality, you're like, oh, no, there's only seven deacons, and I'm not one of them. I guess I'm disempowered. No, guess what? You're empowered to do literally anything you can dream up for the gospel and you don't have to go to the deacon meetings. It's a blessing, right? So you, there is endless opportunity. Scarcity mentality would be like, oh my goodness, we're spending money on something. Like, what if we run out of money? Say, so first of all, the Federal Reserve will make sure we don't run out of money. So I, we don't have to worry about that. But the other thing is that there is so much money in the kingdom. And I've found that generosity tends to follow vision. So if the vision gets bigger, the pool of money to fund it will get bigger. That's, God, you know, we operate with wisdom, of course. That's what we have church governance for. But at the end of the day, we're not holding tightly to a little bit. We, we say, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Let's go 
Let's go out with that at our back and start doing His work. Uh, there's opportunity for you, for your gift sets, for, your, for whatever it is that God has outfitted you to do. There is so much opportunity. Don't get sidelined by getting upset with other people or pulled into some debate. Okay, the Holy Spirit can give us wisdom. And I love how in the, in the New Testament era, they rested on that. They didn't have to work everything out every time it came up. Instead, they just say, you know what? The Holy Spirit is here. He's among us. So in this context, the Holy Spirit was already working among the Gentiles. So they didn't feel like they had to like spell out everything a Gentile had to do. They gave them some general, general direction and then trusted God to work with it. Okay, so we can do that too. You can say, when we come up against things that don't seem like they're solvable, Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom? Maybe we should work separately. Maybe we should work together in a different way. Maybe we should not even worry about whatever it is we're worried about. Okay, and then with humility, there's always a road to success. If in any tense situation, if all the parties have humility in their heart, it will work out. If any of the parties have pride in their heart, it probably won't work out. So make sure you're not the one with the pride in your heart. With humility, there's always a road forward. So here, here's a challenge to you as we go. To become a spirit-filled champion for the mission of Jesus. So I look back at the people in this text who were the ones that felt like they needed to travel from Judea to Antioch to make sure the people knew about the law of Moses, right? It's probably good that they didn't tell us the names of those people. But would you want to be known for that? Like that that would be your legacy? You were the guy that did that? Um, I, I was in Bible college years ago, and I really liked the classes where we got to debate stuff out, you know, and sometimes they'd put some controversial issue on the table, and they'd say, all right, you know, do a presentation on that. So there was one of those. I was super excited about it, and, and I, I'm pretty sure I was right, okay? Now, I was young, so I didn't know what I didn't know. I still don't, but um, but I would say, even looking back in my young, blissful ignorance, I think I was accurate and acting what I was arguing for, and I was passionate about it, and I had an A-plus paper to prove it and a great presentation to go with it, and I delivered that thing with all the gusto that I had, and I did get an A-plus, and I was all I didn't really have the humility thing mastered yet, but I, I think I was, you know, it was good. Um, the professor pulled me aside afterwards and said, you know, that was really good content you had there. Um, is that what you want to be known for? And honestly, no. I mean, it's like some side issue that hardly anybody would even think about. Um, and he said, if you, if you approach it with that much passion, like, you'll be known as the guy that has an opinion about that. Is that what you want to be known for? I said, well, no. He said, well, what do you want to be known for? And what I learned which sent me into some heart check, you know, thinking through that. And what I landed on was I would rather be known for the Great Commission, a mobilizer toward that and one who practices and lives that, not somebody that grabs a side issue and makes that the issue. And so for me, at that point in my life, I'm so thankful for that professor because I really think I'd be in a different place if he hadn't have asked me that question. Um, my challenge to you is very similar. Would you be willing to say, you know what, you can have opinions. I mean, like Paul and Barnabas had different opinions. They didn't even work together. That, you, can, you can keep your traditions if you want to. But at the end of the day, would you be willing to put the mission first 
sharing the gospel, spreading the love of God, make that the thing that your heart is beating for. Give your best passion, your best energy to that. The side issues still matter, but they matter a lot less in light of the big issue. They matter a lot less than all the things we could tear each other apart about. And I, I look back at church history and go, ah, oh, there's been so many times when Christians have missed the boat on this. That's why there's so many denominations and there's so many schisms. And, there's, and even today, you pick up Christian news and you go, what's wrong with people? And in all that debate, you know what's lost is still the world that we're living in. Because people are not on mission. They're caught up in so many other things. So, as we've been doing every Sunday this summer, we're asking the same question. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do in us? How do you want to work through us? Let's pray asking that question. Now, Holy Spirit, we recognize our dependence on you for wisdom. And we know that we live in a world that's not really all that different than the first century world that we're reading about in Acts. A lot of pressure from the outside, a lot of cultural trends that seem like they're aiming against the advance of the gospel. Lord, may, those, may that pressure just strengthen our resolve to keep moving forward on mission. Right now, I pray that you would fill our hearts with such passion for your vision that it would overwhelm our division. And Lord, that we would have uh, before us a mission that we would live for and yearn for and that nothing would take us to the sidelines and nothing would help, nothing would take us away from the race we're called to run. Um, Lord, I, I so appreciate our church family right now and like so many others, recognize a sense of significant momentum and a lot of positive possibility and excitement about where we are today and what we're planning in the future. So, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for a great moment of unity and shared resolve point along the journey, that you would give us the same kind of wisdom that you gave Peter and James and the other early disciples as they contended with this agreement. Lord, would you give us the strength uh, to stay on track, not to lose sight of what we're here for. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday. Have a great 4th of July.